Relatively Prime was made possible by the 159 people who were kind enough to give it some money on Kickstarter. And while I would love to thank every single one of them by name, that would kind of cut into the show's time. So today I would like to thank Y. Lee and K. Klott, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Edmund Harris, Cody Palmer, Martin Dominic, Jay Frosting, Douglas Dollar Stewart, Colin Wright, and Daniel Greenspun. I want to thank all of you for allowing this show to become a thing that actually exists in the world. Uh, so then, uh, typically how this all gets started out uh, is I ask you to, well, uh, please give me your name and affiliations. Uh, I'm Jerry Grossman. I'm a professor of mathematics at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. So... First question first, what is an Erdős number? <laughs> what is an Erdős number? Well, Paul Erdős wrote a lot of mathematical research papers, and he had a lot of collaborators. He tended to write papers with other people. And um, in the 1960s, because this had been going on for so long and he had so many collaborators, people, just for fun, started talking about their Erdős number, which is a measure of how far they are away from Paul Erdős in terms of mathematical collaboration. So if you wrote a paper with Paul Erdős and got it published, then your Erdős number would be one. Paul Erdős himself would have Erdős number zero under this. If you um, wrote a paper with somebody who wrote a paper with Paul Erdős, then your Erdős number would be two, and so on. And it turns out that because around this time, uh, joint research was becoming more prevalent, uh, it turned out that a lot of people had reasonably small Erdős numbers. So, I, there, this gets into why I'm talking about you. So, if that's an Erdős number, what is the Erdős number project? Uh, the Erdős number project is something I just started on a whim uh, in the mid-1990s. People had talked about Erdős numbers, but I don't think anybody had actually collected any data or organized it or made charts of Erdős numbers. So uh, I had some time on my hands and uh, went to the library and started writing down names of Erdős's collaborators and the names of their collaborators and started the Erdős number project. This was about the time that the World Wide Web was coming into its own, so very soon after that um, we began the Erdős number website. And what the website has then is a list of all of Erdős's co-authors and their co-authors, so all of the people with Erdős numbers one and two, and lots of other information about mathematical collaboration and Erdős numbers and such things. So let's, let's talk a little bit about those actual numbers here. So you mentioned that he wrote a lot of papers, wrote with a lot of collaborators. So how many papers did Erdős end up actually authoring? Uh, the total somewhere around 1,500, which is... Uh, so many papers. <laughs> a lot of papers. <laughs> it's more than any other mathematician in the uh, MathSciNet database. Uh, it's probably more than any other mathematician ever, except possibly uh, Leonard Euler, who uh, worked in the 18th century. And how many people did Erdős end up working with? The total number of, of collaborators, I think, is 511. It's not totally clear how to count a collaboration. 
For example, if Erdős and somebody else proposed a problem for a problem section of a math journal, uh, such as the American Mathematical Monthly, uh, does that count as a research publication or not? Um, if Erdős and somebody else were co-editors of a book that, that simply had articles by other people in it, does that count as a research collaboration? So I had to make up some ad hoc rules as to what was going to count and what wasn't going to count. Uh, but using the rules, which I think are pretty reasonable, uh, I think the number is at 511. So I know that there's been at least a little bit of an argument about what happens if it's not actually math? What happens if, it, if you have co-authors and it stretch, stretches into something like biology or chemistry, anything like that? Oh, I, I have no problem with uh, extending this beyond just math. And some of the people on the Erdős number website uh, with Erdős number two are not mathematicians at all. They're biologists or economists or physicists. Uh, for example, John Nash or Albert Einstein. So you, you have this these data sets of, of Erdős numbers. Uh, what sort of properties have you, uh, you know, found from the actual data? Well, I've done some uh, calculation of some of the graph theory parameters that one would uh, normally look at for a, a graph, um, such as the diameter of the graph, that is, what's the longest distance between two points, what do the uh, degrees of the vertices in the graph look like. In this case, that means how many people are there that have collaborated with just one other person, with two other people, with three other people, and so on. Uh, in, in looking at the collaboration graph for more than just the people with Erdős numbers one and two, I actually uh, used the Mathematical Reviews database. The American Mathematical Society was kind enough to uh, allow me to download uh, their, da their database electronically, and I uh, was able to do some analyses. So, for example, I believe the largest Erdős number is about 13, which would be called the radius of the collaboration graph. Um, I think something like 80% of all mathematicians in the database are in the connected component of this graph with Paul Erdős. So I've uh, looked at various graphical pr properties like that. At this point, which one do you think is actually a more impressive number? It, having having the 13 or having, say, a, uh, a 3 or a 4? Well, certainly having a very large, finite Erdős number makes you rather unique. <laughs> so, one, so what you're saying, like, might, what might be very interesting is to go find one of the people with the 13, write one paper with them, and never collaborate with anyone else. That would, I guess, be one way to... <laughs> Uh, and, yeah. and hope that they also don't collaborate with anyone else, thereby lowering theirs and yours, I guess. Right. Um, I, th I think uh, mathematicians like to have as low an air as <laughs> possible. But of course, if you get outside the realm of just mathematical research, then um, probably there are people with uh, air numbers that are quite a bit higher. Uh, once on a lark, I tried to find the air number of my brother, who's actually just a practicing physician. Um, he only has one paper. It's something he wrote when he was um, in high school doing an internship at a biology research laboratory. And uh, I think I was able to find him an Erdős number of nine. That does bring me to, of course, a question of you. What is yours? Uh, my Erdős number is two. 
Um, I actually have collaborated with uh, quite a few different people who have collaborated with Erdős. And uh, just again as a lark, and since I uh, wanted to have a license plate that was easy to remember, I got a vanity license plate in the state of Michigan, which says Erdős too. Oh, that's good. I like that. And so, uh, to finish up, just uh, is there anything about uh, Erdős numbers that you find very interesting that I uh, somehow, through uh, lack of, of proper research into this, uh, failed to ask you a question about? I'm sure I'll think of some things after you leave. <laughs> I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime, stories from the mathematical domain. Paul Erdős is much more than just the person that other mathematicians measure their distance from. He was one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century, and beyond that, the most interesting. His highly collaborative, highly nomadic life brought him in touch with, as you've already heard, hundreds if not thousands of other mathematicians, and every single one of them has their own Erdish story to tell. In order to find out more about the man, I spoke to three of his collaborators. Ron Graham, right now at UC San Diego, kind of math, computer science, and a little juggling. I am Joel Spencer. I'm a professor of uh, both mathematics and computer science at the Courant Institute, uh, New York University. Okay, my name is uh, Carl Pomerantz. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College. And today's episode is going to be all about their Erdős stories. Erdős was certainly a unique individual and a great mathematician, you know, one of the most uh, prolific in the history of mathematics and extremely creative and very generous. And a lot of people uh, feel that Erdős uh, was kind of single-minded, but he actually had a lot of different interests. It's just that the mathematics was the one that kind of stood out most in people's minds. The story begins uh, with uh, a baseball game. Uh, this was uh, in 1975, I believe, at the beginning of the baseball season. Um, Hank Aaron, who played for the Atlanta Braves, was 
pursuing Babe Ruth's home run record. And I was watching the game when he when he hit number 715, breaking the old record of 714. And I noticed some some interesting uh, uh, mathematical or numerological properties of the numbers 714 and 715. And I ended up writing a, a humorous paper for the Journal of Recreational Math with uh, two other people from from the University of Georgia about um, about the number 714 and 715. And in this paper, we, uh, even though it was supposed to be uh, sort of an elaborate mathematical joke, we had a serious problem in the paper. Uh, and uh, Erdish read the paper, and he wrote a letter to me saying that he knew how to solve this problem, and he wanted to come to Georgia to discuss it with me. So um, I was uh, quite uh, taken by this, uh, that this famous uh, mathematician should want to come visit me, but um, I, uh, of course, uh, arranged for him to come, and I met him at the Atlanta airport, and I remember, uh, so that's the first time I saw him in person, and I remember that uh, uh, it wasn't hard to spot him uh, as being looking quite different from everybody, and uh, in addition, when we got to the luggage carousel, uh, he was having trouble finding his suitcase, yet it was obvious to me that there was one suitcase that was totally singular, so totally different from all the others because of its old age. And of course, that was his suitcase. But we, we grabbed that. He wanted me to open it up to look inside to make sure that it was his suitcase. And yes, he, it was. So even though um, I had not met him before nor ever seen his suitcase before, it was, it was pretty easy to tell uh, what, which they were. So that's the first time I met Erdős. Let, let me talk about the first time I met Erdős. Um, and I had managed to solve one of his problems, what we call mathematics conjectures. And I was very, very pleased with it. And he was in visiting Los Angeles, where, where I was living at the time. And I went uh, again to his hotel room. I think a lot of the mathematics was, was done out of the hotel rooms where he was staying. And I went to the room, and I, I showed him the results, and, and he was pleased with it, and, and the method of the results. And immediately, I mean really immediately, like, like two seconds, he said, well, okay, maybe we can use this method to solve this other problem. And he mentioned this, this other problem, which actually, if, if you just looked at it, it looked like it was a completely different problem. But he had the insight that, that the methodologies could be applied to the second problem as well. And it turned out he was completely right. And uh, we started working on this second problem. And then he went off, this was his modus operandi, he went off to here and there and everywhere, and I worked on it and worked on it, and actually it became our first joint paper, so I was very, very pleased with that at the start of my relationship with, with Paul Erdős, which was, the, was and is the center of my mathematical life. Uh, well, I first uh, was aware of him when I was a graduate student, Berkeley, 
and I proved a result and my advisor uh, suggested maybe I drop a line to Erdi, she might know something about it, and I did. And this was in 1959, so some time ago. And he wrote back and said, yeah, very interesting, and you might want to think about something else and so forth. And uh, I didn't actually meet him until 1963 in a, in a meeting in Colorado. And uh, from then we just really were communicating more and he started visiting more. I used to work in the circus on trampoline, and I actually got him on my trampoline. He bounced a little bit, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get his mother to go on my trampoline, which is probably a good thing. No, I remember once, so Erich liked to uh, uh, think about challenges. For example, could he uh, come within a factor of two of the world's record of various things. So if the world's strongest man could lift X, could he lift X over two? Well, he couldn't. But he once wondered, he said, do you think I could run up this 10 flight of uh, stairs, 10 stories uh, flight of stairs uh, in at least you know, less than twice the time that it would take you? I said, well, I don't think so. I think I could go up twice as fast as you. He said, okay, let's try. Okay, we were in a hotel in Atlanta, and so uh, we started at the bottom of the stairwell. I said, Paul, I have a watch that has two stopwatches, so I'll stop it at the top when I get there, and then when you get there, I'll stop it. We'll compare. Okay, so we started up the stairs, and uh, I got to the top, puffing away, and then he got there, and I pushed the watch. He finally said, well, okay, how did it go? I said, well, Paul, I'm afraid I pushed the wrong buttons. <laughs> I erased it. We'll have to do it again. He said, we are not doing it again. <laughs> but uh, there was another time we were in Newark Airport uh, waiting for his bags to come, sitting there. And then an, they had an escalator, a down escalator. And we're sitting there waiting. And Paul said, do you think it's hard to run up a down escalator? I said, uh... Well, I don't think it's that hard. He said, well, I don't know. It looks kind of hard. It's coming down. I said, well, I'll tell you. Let me, I'll try it. So I went over there and uh, jumped on down escalator, running up. And I made it up, but it was harder than I thought because it's just coming down. And you're, So I came back. And I said, Paul, you're right. It's, it's, it is not so easy. He said, no, no, it looked easy. I, th I think it's easy. <laughs> I said, Paul, it's not easy. He said, look, I'm going to try it. I said, well, Paul's harder than you think. So he went over there, and he has this big overcoat on. And he started up, and about after four steps, he kind of fell over on his stomach, and it kind of deposited him, you know, you know feet first down. And people were looking like, like this, like this wino or something was kind of... And I said, Paul, what happened? He said, I lost my balance. <laughs> because, you know, it is a little uh, different view when you're taking steps you should be going someplace and yet you're kind of not going any place and and I think physiologically it's kind of so uh, so he <laughs> he gave up on that one
one of his strongest characteristics was his desire to to seek the mathematical truth of whatever he's working on. And it didn't matter whether uh, he found a solution or somebody else found a solution or together. He just wanted to know, he wanted to understand. And in that sense, he was extremely generous and would often, for example, uh, when some young mathematician wrote and said, gee, I think I can prove this nice result, Ehrlich would say, gee, that's quite interesting and you might want to extend it or look at this further generalization, when in fact Ehrlich had already proved the result, he just never published it, <laughs> and he didn't want to do what Gauss was accused of doing, for example, from time to time. Yeah, I already did that, so it's not interesting. So, And uh, so he would be very generous that way. Uh, also, Ehrlich would uh, often have you know, 30, sometimes even more, simultaneous collaborations going on because uh, he would start one and two days later he would be someplace else. And one of his most prized possessions was his diary. He kept, in a, it looked like kind of a laboratory notebook. Uh, wherever he went, he would write down, usually in the morning, because he'd get up pretty early, like five, and write down what he was thinking about and what had happened the day before and uh, just mathematics, all in Hungarian. And then he would often come back a few years later when he said, now I see that this problem is a special case of something else. So he'd make kind of commentary. And uh, he really carried these with him. And uh, what he was able to do was when he would come back to some place he hadn't been for, say, two years, working on some problem with somebody, he would read that entry in the notebook the night before and then when he would first see the person, he said, you know, I think if we took a graph that had a certain property, then we might be able to, and, the, and then he, so he developed kind of a, quite a nice reputation for being able to just remember all of this stuff simultaneously. But in fact, he had a little help <laughs> with his diaries. In fact, uh, I was in Hungary once with him, and I think he had about 15 of these diaries over the, over the years, and I suggested that he should have them photocopied just in case something might happen. He said, yes, a good idea. So he sent five or six over to wherever they were going to copy them, and it turns out that they claimed they had lost them a few days later, and he was in a complete panic, and that was the only topic of conversation for the next few weeks. How could they possibly lose these things? Well, it turns out they finally did find them, and uh, now, in fact, uh, it was suggested after Erdős died that maybe these be made available to the mathematical community just to see what his mathematical thoughts were and how things were developing. But they're in the possession of one of his closest colleagues, uh, a mathematician named Vera Shosh, who uh, feels she's not really ready to let the mathematics in them out to the world. She says, well, most of the good problems we talked about anyway, and we're trying to convince her, but uh, she's still not yet convinced. So uh, we'll see. But, uh, but it would be interesting. Uh, let, let me tell you a story where I, I definitely remember the date. It was April 1970 because my uh, firstborn son played a 
crucial role uh, in utero. And Erdős was at a conference in New York, and he was there with his mother, who was uh, in her 90s, really a, a remarkable woman herself. And I went to uh, their rooms in a hotel uh, with my wife, um, and immediately Erdős's mother took my, my wife uh, into the other room and started talking. She was learning her fourth or fifth language, English at the time. Um, and there were 10 of us in the room, uh, 10 mathematicians in the room with, with Erdős. And not only were there 10 of us, so he was holding this, this uh, uh, dialogue with us, but it, it was really a trialogue because we were in three very different areas of mathematics, all of which uh, Erdős had made significant contributions to. And we were holding the three, we were holding three mathematical conversations at the same time, Erdős had this, among his abilities, he could, he could do several things at once. And, and so he was the leader of all three conversations simultaneously, as the ten of us were sort of around in a big semicircle around him, and talking and talking and talking about different problems. And this went on for quite some time, and it was pretty thrilling for me. I, I was a young guy, and, and just to be uh, in the same room with Erdős was, was a big thrill. And I have to confess that I'd uh, kind of forgotten my wife. Uh, but all of a sudden, Erdish rose up and turned to the other room and, and said something in rapid Hungarian, which I didn't speak a word of, uh, to his mother. So apparently what had happened, we found out later, was that uh, while his mother was talking to my wife, she'd made some kind of grammatical error in her English, and so he was he was uh, correcting her and telling her the proper way to uh, speak, uh, to say the things. So apparently while the three of us were in this trialogue, it was really a, at the same time he was listening and following uh, all the conversation between uh, his mother and my wife. Uh, I always thought that was a remarkable story. sit and work with, with, with Paul Erdős, and often at my house there would be five or six people working simultaneously on different things with Paul Erdős, and he would kind of think about this and that, and he said, well, why don't you try something like this, and of course maybe this is completely foolish, but it might work, and, and uh, then he'd walk around, and sometimes you'd have to keep him occupied. Uh, he liked classical music but more of the Mozart Bach. You know, he didn't really uh, have uh, as great an appreciation for Bartok, for example, or Stravinsky. You see, these are kind of a little too modern. He called music uh, noise. I mean, he had his own code uh, for various things. You know, children are epsilons. Well, in mathematics, epsilon means a small quantity. So there was once a dinner he was at, and uh, 
someone asked him, well, would you like you know, some of this food? He said, well, I'd just like to eat an Epsilon. And someone said, what? <laughs> you cannibal, you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Erdős was not as interested in seeing the fine details of a proof. He would like to say, look, this is the main idea. You have to do this. There's some details. Try to carry it out. And uh, there are a few cases when he would make such a suggestion to an up-and-coming mathematician. He says, well, I think this particular approach will work in some details, and I think it'll be fine. And the guy, uh, you know, in one case, almost had a nervous breakdown trying to make it work when, in fact, it wouldn't work. And there he said, Later, oh yeah, I guess that uh, I guess that won't work, will it? <laughs> well, uh, that happens, you know. As they say in research, if if you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be called research. But he had a very good instinct, a very good feel for uh, numbers, and most of his early papers were number theory. Then he kind of branched out and did quite a few different things in, in combinatorics and graph theory and interpolation theory and a lot of things that people don't necessarily associate with Erdős. But uh, he's still writing papers, actually. He's slowed down, you know, because many people started a paper with Erdős, and it kind of laid in a stack someplace, and they didn't quite get around to it, and they well, I better do it. And, and uh, so I think the last couple of years, he's published three or four papers. Of course, he's been dead almost 15 years. So, so, so he slowed down. but. Uh, the era of email and there was a certain time lag in writing letters to people and getting replies and uh, he seemed to have been born before the age when he should have been around when when it would have been very easy for him to be working simultaneously with many people in real time and often when he was uh, at a at a place say where there was only one or two people that he could collaborate with, uh, he would sort of use them up. He would exhaust them. And he needed had to have others around to talk with. And if he couldn't leave to go to those other places, he, he sometimes imported uh, collaborators. So um, he was visiting for uh, a stretch at the University of Florida and at that time, I was a professor at the University of Georgia in the neighboring state. And you'd think it was close by, but to drive from Athens, Georgia to Gainesville, Florida was about five or six hours. Anyway, Erdős wanted me to come down and, and visit with him in Gainesville for a few days. This was in uh, early 1980. And I did this. And... On the way down, on the drive down, I was thinking about a problem on which Erdős had written. 
namely uh, the distribution of pseudoprimes. And uh, I, I, at least I thought I had a way to do something better. It was not written down. I was just thinking about it on the ride. And when I got there, I, to Gainesville, I described the idea to him. And uh, he, he thought that was a good idea, and he thought I should give a, uh, uh, a colloquium talk about that at Florida. So he arranged with the uh, colloquium director to have me give a talk that uh, week that I was visiting. And um, the, the only people who came to the talk were the colloquium director, Erdish, and another visitor in Florida at the time. Uh, this was Stan Ulam, who's uh, quite famous for being one of the inventors of the H-bomb and also was a mathematician. So even though I had a small audience, who was, you know, Two of the three people there were Erdish and Ulam, so it was, on a percentage-wise, the most illustrious audience that I had ever spoken to. He was very good, one of the best, I think, at identifying kind of the next step, which means this, suppose you're working in a certain area, a certain problem, and you finally see how to do a particular thing, and he was able to suggest, well, what's the next thing? What's, what's the easiest thing that you can't quite do yet? And if you could just do that one more step, then you'd have a little more insight to see, okay, now maybe the next step. It's like climbing up a mountain. You put in a piton. You say, okay, I can just go a little bit further. Well, now that I'm there, maybe I can go a little bit further. And you know, little by little, pretty soon you're pretty far up the mountain. Of course, in mathematics, there's always that next mountain <laughs> and the next mountain range. Uh, I was someone, I had mathematical talent. I mean, I was doing okay. He, he took people that, that had mathematical talent that were working on mathematics, and he just brought us to a totally different level, to a, a totally different level, and that's, that's what happened to me, and that's what happened to so many of us. He was very good at, at also understanding for a particular person what that person's strengths might be, and therefore what problems might be attractive to that person, and, and for which that person would actually have a chance of making some progress. But I, I think uh, in that pantheon where, where, where he is, uh, he's unusual in the sense that he, he made many conjectures. And the conjectures were such that they would advance the field, and yet they weren't totally out of reach. In mathematics, it's very easy to, to make a question that no one will ever, ever get in 100 years. I mean, there, there are these questions, and people just know they're interesting questions, but, but we're nowhere close. But Ernest would ask conjectures where if you resolve them, you would, you would be breaking new ground. And it wasn't totally impossible that you would resolve them. One time I, I, I did resolve one of his questions, and I, I got, he gave money for the solutions of his conjectures, and I, I got a check from him for $10, which I... Uh, he insisted that it be cashed, so I, I made a Xerox copy, and it was on my wall for about 20 years. It was, uh, 
a tremendous thing. So there was a tradition that started back in Poland, something called the Scottish Cafe, where people, mathematicians, would sit around and have a glass of wine, work on mathematics, and there was a book that had problems in it, and they would offer uh, a nice meal, a bottle of wine or something, and maybe even a small monetary thing. So Erdős kind of picked up that tradition and would offer small amounts and sometimes even larger amounts for problems that he thought that were difficult but but would be seminal in the development for you know, the next steps. And uh, in fact, just recently, uh, Andrei Semeredi, who was a brilliant Hungarian, got the Abel Prize, and one of the main results cited was a $1,000 problem of Erdős. It was his first $1,000 problem, and it's a magnificent solution, and it really led to quite a few uh, other results, people getting Fields Medals, Tim Gowers, and, and Terry Town, and so forth, all revolved around this particular area number theory that, and using Semredi's results. possessions. I mean, as the as a well-known story goes, he traveled around with two half-full suitcases, and you know, one of them was mostly filled with papers and reprints and letters that people were trying to catch up with him. And uh, uh, I know one time he liked he liked people to pack a suitcase for him because he had a lot of stuff and he didn't have that much stuff. But could you pack? So once it's kind of a joke. Uh, someone had given me a huge clock uh, that was about a foot in diameter, just a big clock, and I just kind of put it in the Erdős' suitcase, put some clothes, and and uh, zipped up the suitcase, and he went on to Michigan, I think, from New Jersey, his next stop, and I phoned him when he got there, how's everything, everything's fine, and, and, and then right at the conversation, he said, Oh yeah, I noticed there was a clock in my suitcase. I just gave it away. <laughs> so, okay, good. So it's uh, yeah, didn't have anything special there. Erdős and I got to talking about Carmichael numbers, which are related to pseudo primes, and um, Erdős had an idea how one might try to prove there are infinitely many of them. And he found a paper in the library written in German by an Austrian mathematician named Karl Prachar. And he thought that this paper was relevant to Carmichael numbers, but we didn't see how, how to take it and use it. In any event, this uh, episode became very important to my own development as a mathematician. Later that 
same year, maybe eight months later, I heard about uh, a primality test of Adelman and Rumley that, uh, where they could not completely analyze the running time. And I realized that if you just changed the test a little bit and used the, the Prahar paper that, that Erdős had shown me, uh, one could uh, you know, finish, the, finish the proof of the running time for that algorithm. Uh, I, I made that contribution, got invited in as a co-author on that uh, primality paper, and uh, that changed the whole direction of my career. So, um, in, into the whole into the area of uh, computational number theory, and I owe it to um, uh, that, that conversation with Erdős earlier that year. Many years later, uh, I guess uh, I don't know, maybe 12 years later, I was uh, working with. Uh, my colleagues at Georgia, uh, Alfred and Granville, and uh, we came up with a proof of uh, the that there are infinitely many uh, Carmichael numbers. We we dedicated the paper to Erdős on his um, 80th birthday, and guess what? We used we used that same paper of Prahar that that Erdős thought would be relevant. was also interested in kind of the political aspects, you know, and one of the reasons he traveled a lot was because uh, he had a special passport uh, with, I think, kind of a residence in Israel for a while, which allowed him to travel out of Hungary when it was very hard to travel from Hungary. So in, in the bad old days, as he would say, mathematicians couldn't travel out of Hungary, and so he was their lifeline. He would come to the West learn results, get some papers, and bring them back to Hungary a lot, so back and forth. So he was kind of a, a connection there. Uh, and then uh, he had very strong moral principles, and even though he realized that he was very helpful to the mathematicians in Hungary, they had a meeting uh, there, and uh, the organizers of the government decided that uh, mathematicians from Israel would not be allowed to attend the meeting. And he thought that that was completely unacceptable. And he said, I will no longer come to Hungary uh, until the government apologizes. And uh, so he stayed out about two years. And people said, look, Paul, you're just, the government's not going to apologize. They're not going to change their mind. And you're just hurting the mathematicians in Hungary because they need this connection. So he said, well, okay. But uh, anyway, I think it was wrong. I think officially in Hungary, even at that time, an international meeting, you're required by international protocols to allow any uh, credible mathematician uh, give a visa to come to the meeting. But this meeting was declared not international, but just some lesser thing.
is also a nice story. So one of the young Hungarian prodigies, again, Peter Frankel, was, uh, when he was graduated from school, was uh, drafted into the military for military service in Hungary. But many of his uh, talented mathematical uh, friends were not. They got an appointment to go to the institute. And so he felt that that was discriminatory because he was Jewish. So he asked Paul to write a letter uh, kind of requesting that he be excused from the military to do his obligation in a more, you know, suitable suitable way. So Paul wrote the letter for Peter, and it uh, worked, and Peter was then released from the army, and right away he defected and went to France. Well, Erdős was very upset uh, because he felt that he didn't know about this, and it would weaken his influence to do similar things for other people in the future. So he said, I'm not going to speak to Peter for one year because that, that was just the wrong thing to do and you should have told me and so forth. Well, during that time, Peter got his a PhD from a university in France and Erdős was on the committee and came and wrote a glowing report. It's a terrific work, but he would not speak to Peter. <laughs> so that one year passed and then when that happened, it's fine and there, everything was fine. Well, there's an interesting footnote to the story of how I first met Erdős, uh, which happened uh, shortly before his death. He was receiving an honorary degree at Emory, and uh, uh, I got invited to this uh, reception the evening before for the people receiving honorary degrees. And uh, it turns out that another person receiving an honorary degree uh, and at that reception was, was uh, Hank Aaron, the same guy whose uh, home run led to my eventually meeting Erdush. So I told, uh, I, I introduced myself to Aaron and told him the story uh, and uh, told him how his athletic feat was very important in my development as a mathematician in my career. He thought this was sort of strange and anyway, I introduced him to Erdush and there's a photograph of uh, the two of them talking uh, at, uh, at that time. So uh, the Emory professor that, uh, who had arranged this, uh, Ron Gould, uh, had a, uh, uh, some baseballs for Hank Aaron to sign, so he gave one to me, and I had Aaron sign it, and then I had Erdős sign it. So my joke has been that uh, even though uh, uh, they don't have a joint paper, they do have a joint baseball. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron and Erdős.
So he used to play ping pong a little, and uh, and so I played with him at this meeting, and he beat me. And I said, "How could this old guy?" Now then, he was only fifty. Then he said, "Beat me at ping pong." I mean, I mean, I was a gymnast and a trampoline and juggler and all that kind of. So I decided, when I was at Bell Labs, to learn about ping pong. So I joined a club and took lessons and so forth, and I finally became the Bell Labs ping pong champion. And then I could beat him playing with a badminton racket or I mean, something like that. But uh, but he definitely uh, you know, influenced you know that that. But uh, he influenced a lot of people in that he got them working on problems and with him and kind of open up a new uh, area in their mathematical uh, spectrum, the things that they're interested in. And uh, I think there are a lot of people uh, who are influenced by him kind of in the same way that the, the popular mathematics recreation writer Martin Gardner influenced quite a few people too through his columns in Scientific American. Whether a lot of them became professionals, I don't know, but they certainly were more sympathetic and interested in, in things kind of mathematical. And, and Erdish would kind of, uh, he was also very sympathetic and encouraging to young mathematicians. An example is uh, this Glenn Whitney, who was a young mathematician. In fact, the story is a nice Erdish story. Uh, so Glenn Whitney was the little brother of a woman I used to coach gymnastics for. I was her gymnastics coach in New Jersey. She said, my little brother is pretty good at math, just been admitted to Harvard, but he doesn't quite have the money he needs for that first year. Now, Harvard, if they admit you and you don't, you know, if you can't afford it, then they'll find a way to give you money. But the problem was, his family could afford it. His father said, look, I don't see why you have to go to Harvard. You should just go to UCLA, like, like I did. But Glenn was you know, determined to go to Harvard. So I mentioned this to Erdish, and Erdish said, well, why don't you, you know, let me talk to him. So we met in my office and talked to Glenn, and he was impressed and said, I'll tell you what, Glenn, let me lend you $1,000 and yeah, pay back when you can. So that was enough. Glenn made his first year at Harvard, and then he finished at Harvard, undergraduate. Then he got a PhD at UCLA, uh, like his father wanted. And then he was a postdoc at Michigan. And he called up one day, he said, Ron, I now can pay Paul back the $1,000. What should I do? So I asked Paul, and Paul said, look, just tell him to do what I did with it. Namely, kind of pass it on to the next. And Glenn said, that's perfect, because, you know, I'm in recursion theory, so that's really. But uh, then it turns out that Glenn ended up working at uh, Renaissance Technologies in a hedge fund, did very well, and uh, has now decided to kind of dedicate the next part of his life to building the best mathematics museum that the world has ever seen. Uh, there's a kind of political writer named Charles Krauthammer, and he wrote the Washington Post obituary for Erdish. And it started by saying, Paul Erdish, legendary mathematician, and so forth and so on. And then he died leaving no descendants. And then Krauthammer told a story. And then he said, no descendants indeed. And the point was that that was Erdish's legacy of kind of passing it on. And so that was a nice, a nice touch. It connects to the, so you see in some sense, Erdish is behind this 
Museum of Mathematics in New York City. You see, otherwise Glenn wouldn't, who knows what, you see. Well, I, I, I think of, of uh, Erdős's legacy um, uh, and, and how it continues. Uh, I think about it almost every day when, I, when I'm with my own students. And I, I hope that in, in my own poor, weak way, I can transmit some of the feeling about mathematics to the talented students I have, the excitement about mathematics and the the quest for mathematical truth, but at the same time, it's, it's only a pale shadow. Uh, Erdős was a, a unique personality that, that can't really be duplicated. So we try, I try, uh, all the others that knew him try to continue his legacy, uh, but in a, in a real sense, he's irreplaceable. Paul was someone who really wanted to understand the beauty and kind of the inner workings of not just the natural numbers, but just mathematics in general, but certainly numbers were a key part of it. And anything that he could do to help help him do that whether by working with zillions of people and traveling. I mean, he would go to a, a place and in two days kind of soak up all the mathematical juice and then it was kind of <laughs> done. Okay, let's go on to the next place. And uh, yet he was very kind and generous and uh, just a, a special kind of guy. And you don't see many people like that, but you don't see any people like that. Hi, I'm Colin Wright, one of the many funders of Relatively Prime, and that's it for this episode. We want to thank the guests Jerry Grossman, Ron Graham, Joel Spencer, Carl Pomerantz, and the musicians A.P. Clark, The Naughty Step, Rob Hurst, Grant Tregellis, J.M. Griffiths, and Jazza78, all of whom contributed to making this possible. If you want to find out more about the guests or the music, or if you want to discuss the show, please join us over at relprime.com. And while you're on the internet, why not head over to iTunes and leave a review of the show? It really does help other people to find it. If you have any feedback about the show, just email us. The address is samuel at acmescience.com. That's Samuel's personal email address. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike license, and any remixes are greatly looked forward to. So thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for the next episode. <laughs>